0: So, who are you? What do you allow to define you? What is your identity? Who who are you? What is your identity? We all have something we cling to that gives us our identity. Maybe it's our job. Our role as a spouse, or maybe as a parent, or a son, or a daughter. Maybe the amount of money we have. Maybe our looks. Not mine, but some people. Maybe our ministry. Maybe our talents. Our identity. Then it gets more nuanced than that. As we find our identity not just in that thing, but in how well we do that specific thing. And then we really latch onto it. Maybe... We're not just a nurse, but we're a great nurse. Maybe we're not just a wife, but we're one in a million wife. Maybe we don't have don't just have good kids; we have brilliant, successful, great kids. Maybe we don't just have money. Maybe we're not just a musician; we're a recording artist with fans, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But here's the thing: identity is often at the heart of our struggles, our anxieties, our uncertainty. Think about it, the next time that you're really struggling with something, and you have a lot of anxiety, you're suffering. Take time and really think about it. You'll find that identity, and the question of identity is often behind it. Because this is one of the reasons we wear so many masks. One of the reasons we have such difficulty in relationship. Identity. What do people think of me? What will people think of me? Will they like me? Do I measure up? And this is because what we latch onto as our identity is transient at best. At best, it's transient. fluctuates and eventually all our identities go away anyway. We might be the best doctor in the city, but eventually a younger, more brilliant doctor will come along. We might have a great voice and then get throat cancer and we can't sing anymore. We might be excellent parents, but then our kids grow up and leave home. Or worse, then our identity shifts, and we're lost, and we're shattered, and we try to find a new identity. Sometimes they call it midlife crisis. It's an identity issue. Then there is the other side of this struggle with identity, and this is the darker side of identity. Sometimes we don't just really have an identity. And so we're tossed about by the identities others give us. And most of the time those identities are not given with any kind of kindness, right? They're given to be judgmental. Oh, you're divorced. Oh, you're poor. Oh, you're a single parent. Oh, you're a horrible parent. You're fat. You're lazy. Legal immigrant. You're stupid. You're promiscuous. You're a failure. You're a sinner. You're a conservative, you're a liberal, etc., etc., etc. It is a question, identity is a question that has massive implications in our lives almost on a constant basis. But there's actually good news about this whole idea. St. Paul in his letter to the Roman makes a profound, maybe one of his most profound statements, and he made a lot of them that we looked at for a number of years in 1 Corinthians. In Romans chapter 6, he says we are slaves to righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. Now, I want to make a quick side note. Slave, I understand the word slave is a horrible term, and it shouldn't be understood that way. It is a horrible term. Slavery is an undeniable evil, and it's simply horrific that slavery continues in mind-boggling numbers even today. As it's just man's ongoing collective inhumanity man. But here's the thing about Paul. Paul was always using illustrations and metaphors that were easily accessible to his audience. So, in the time when he was writing to the Romans, they completely understood slavery, so he used it as an illustration to drive a point home, but using the term doesn't make him a supporter of slavery, as some scholars want to argue. And if we can get past the negative imagery of slavery for a moment, and simply grasp this idea he's using, I think we'll understand what a magnificent statement this is. Paul is saying that just as a slave is not and cannot be free, a slave is trapped, if you will, in his condition, we are trapped in righteousness. We can never not be righteous. Think about that. Just, I mean, honestly, think about that for a moment. Because God loves us so much, He died for us, and His righteousness is now ours, and so now nothing we do, nothing we do, or will do, or could ever do, can remove us from righteousness. We are slaves to righteousness. Now that's an identity Worth having. And if and when we can embrace that identity in our deepest being, I believe it really will help alleviate a lot of the struggles and anxieties we face. The suffering surrounding the identity question. See, our whole pursuit of identity is because, at some ancient and foundational level, whether we consciously acknowledge this or not, we are striving to be accepted by the one being our acceptance most matters, God. Our creator has given us his image and so we're all desperately trying to give others his acceptance. And we all have this very acute suspicion that we can't. So we look for other ways to be accepted, other identities that we hope will cure that constant craving. But all these substitutions don't last. And even if they do, they're never really out the satisfaction we're looking for because while we might be measuring up for someone, we know we are still not measuring up for God. But that's what's so amazing about grace. Slaves to Righteousness. Righteous. That satisfies our deep longing to be accepted by God. Always, we always are. It's good news to be beloved children of God. Always. See, we all fail, right? Well, I I I fail. We know we fail. I failed miserably this week, a few times actually. And when we are trying to forge our own identity to make up for the failures. living according to the law think about this and that's a failing proposition and that's why Paul said we were slaves to sin earlier in this because no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, we've been looking at this verse a few times, we'll continue to look at this verse as we go through the study on grace and law we can't live the law enough ever to be righteous by it. Ever. So trying to live the law is being a slave of sin because we are constantly being reminded we fail. That's what's so amazing about grace. Grace makes us slaves of righteousness. We can never not be righteous. That's a great double there. We can never not be righteous because of what God has done for us. Like Paul said in Romans, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you peace, holiness, and the result is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death. But, the gift of God is eternal life, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this reality of the relationship of law and grace is perfectly illustrated by our story today of Daniel and the lion's death. See, there is a detail in this story that has often bothered me, and perhaps it's bothered you. The king made a law. Daniel broke it. So he got thrown into the lion's den. What has bothered me is, why didn't the king just make an exception for Dan? They were friends. He's the king, he can do whatever he wants. Why didn't he just make that exception? Because that's the thing about the law, it doesn't work that way. The law is fixed, the law is permanent. It's not a respecter of persons, it's inflexible, and the law cannot be lowered. The law cannot be lowered. And this, I think, is where we tend to get a lot of confusion surrounding Christian theology and the concept of grace and law. And in some way, this confusion is the birthplace of legalism and cheap grace. It's a real strange phenomenon, but when you really think about it, legalism and cheap grace quite the same thing even though they came into existence to fight each other legalism came into existence to fight the theology of cheap grace and cheap grace came into existence to fight the theology of legalism they both exist from understanding from misunderstanding that the law is inflexible see cheap grace thinks that how grace works is sort of like a friendship grandfather type relationship you fail but because you're a close friend The failure is forgiven. Because, hey, you're doing so good in so many other areas, it's okay. So the bar gets lowered. You're really trying your best to love others, and while you might not be living exactly how you're supposed to, well, that's okay. Keep trying your best. But that's not grace. That's not the gospel at all. Sadly, many of us Christians have done that to grace. And in the process, diminish the gospel so much, it's not at all good news anymore. It has in fact created that country club mentality of modern Christianity. That if you're in, every branch has their doorway to get in. But once you're in, everything's okay. Because then you get special favors from God. You're his friend. He lowers the bar for you. But if you're out of the club, nothing's okay. That's not the gospel. The gospel is good news because the gospel clearly shines the spotlight on just how high the bar of the law is. And this is why legalism is just like cheap grace. Legalists think we can actually live the law. They think they live the law, at least enough, to garner God's blessings. They think that by living the law enough, we'll get God to make exceptions for us. But have you ever read Matthew five, the Sermon on the Mount? I love the Sermon on the Mount, and I hate the Sermon on the Mount. People want it to be this feel-good chapter. I think that's why Jesus starts off with "Blessed are oh, the blessed are blessed are" because he knows what's coming. He's <laughs> got to get him killed. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals just how high the law is. And in so doing, reveals why we all need true grace all the time. All the time. In our modern vernacular, Matthew 5 would sound something like this. It's true, you might actually live a pretty good life no murder, no adultery, you're honest, (coughs) you even forgive your wife when she messes up, you train your kids in the way they should go, you are hard work, you have no major vices, you go to church, you pray, you know the Bible, but guess what, that's not the whole law. I'm really glad you haven't slept with your neighbor's wife, but remember the last time she went for a jog by your house? Wearing yoga pants and a sports bra? Those thoughts that come out, Jesus said in Matthew 5, that's the same thing as being an adulterer. So you're really an adulterer. He goes on to say, no, you haven't killed anyone. But remember that person who posted on their Facebook page something political that you thought was absolutely the stupidest, most blasphemous thing you ever heard? Well, your comments. We're so dripping with hate. That's exactly what the law calls murder. So you're a murder. See why chapter 5 is it's just brutal. Matthew chapter 5 is horrible sermon on him. And yes, you might forgive your wife, but let's talk about your enemies. See, real grace does not say Oh, you're doing the best you can. You're okay. I will change the law for you. That's not real grace. Real grace says you're decidedly not okay. But because I met the demands of the law for you, grace made you perfect. That's A law that can be changed on a whim or lowered to make us okay is not good news. Because it keeps us worrying all the time. It might not get lowered enough. Or we might not make God happy enough to forgive us. That's not good news. Good news is, yeah, we can't (coughs) lift the law, but we don't have to because God did. And so see, that's why legalism and cheap grace is so similar and so problematic. Neither of these options are good news because it puts the onus on us to save ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I don't care how low the bar is, I, I'm not going to reach it. But thanks be to God, there's the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the correct relationship between law and grace. The law is inflexible and for everybody, even the friend of the king. But grace, grace is exactly what steps in because we all fail the law. So what does grace do? What does grace do? Well, in the words of Julian grace closes lions' mouths. I love that. I love that. See Daniel broke the law. And even though he was a friend of the king, he still had to pay the price for breaking the law. So into the lions, then he goes. And that is exactly where grace comes in. The lions' mouths are shut. It's a beautiful story. It's the gospel story. The law is high, the law is inflexible, the law demands righteousness, but because God is a God of grace, he he died to give us his righteousness. See, the Christ event, God became human, all human, and lived a perfect life, but died as though a sinner rose again. And the mystery of grace is the mechanism (coughs) that imputes that righteousness to us somehow, some way. Grace its beautiful. So, while the law might throw us into a lion's den, grace, makes sure their mouths are shut, always. And there's nothing we can do to open them. Ever. Ever. Because our true identity is that we are slaves to righteousness. We are always righteous. And this is why I started with that quote <clears throat> this morning, if you were here for it, why we all need the gospel all the time. All of them. All the time. For those of us worried about failing the demands of the law all the time, that's the camp I fall in. I I fail the law a lot. So knowing we are slaves to righteousness gives us freedom from that worry, And then we can be free to start living like Christ because we're not worried about failing. Because we know... If we do slip up, the lion's mouth will be shut. We're free to allow the power of grace to help us live like Christ. For those of us who think we are living the law, we need the gospel all the time because it reminds us we're not perfect and we are no different than anyone else. Especially those folks we often point at as being horrible sinners, right? (coughs) The gospel is good news because while it reminds us we're all horrible sinners, but we are also perfectly righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. See, the truly illuminated person, as John Newton says, does not go around beating up the blind because they know they are blind too, and only make grace makes them see. St. Paul wrote The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. The gospel, It's not just the beginning of Christianity. It's the middle. It's the end, too. It's what we need all the time. And we need to be telling each other the gospel all the time. And that's why we come here on Sundays to celebrate the gospel that Christ died for us. Because it's the power of God to save and transform us. And in the end, it's our truest identity. Thanks be to God.